Welcome to the Secrets of Confident Women podcast, where you'll learn all the best tips, tricks, and practical techniques for building the confidence levels you've always wanted. With inspiring interviews, real-life examples, and game-changing insights, this podcast is for women who know that mastering the skill of confidence is one of the most important things they'll ever do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Secrets of Confident Women podcast. I'm Anastasia, and together with my business partner, Jody, we run Rise Women, a business dedicated to helping all women make confidence their new normal, and we have so much fun doing it. Actually, one of my favorite parts of our business is this podcast, especially on days like today when I get to interview someone incredible who inspires me and who has had an impact in my life. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Claire Rowe, the founder of Rowe & Associates Child and Family Psychology. Claire is the founder of Rowan Associates Child and Family Psychology. As an educational and developmental psychologist, Claire specializes in pediatric psychology, including assessment and diagnosis of childhood disorders. She has extensive experience in the treatment of childhood and adolescent anxiety and depression and parental training in behavioral management. Claire is passionate about empowering adults to become confident parents through practical and hands-on support, and she has a particular interest in providing therapy for children and families who are undergoing parental separation, which is exactly how she entered the lives of my children and I when I went to her over nine years ago when I separated from my then-husband. I was referred to Claire and went because I was at a point in my life where I'd lost my sense of self, I think, and also a lot of my confidence. And I was concerned that my lack of self-belief would have an impact on my children, especially at a time when I knew they would need me the most. They were both very young and, you know, I just couldn't afford to not have confidence in parenting. I wanted to make sure that my separation from their father would have the least amount of impact on their lives as possible. And I also wanted to make sure that their father and I were both well equipped with any parenting tips and techniques that we might need to navigate what was ahead. And one of the things that I loved the most about Claire when I first spoke to her is her firm belief that children and families should not be in long-term therapy. And also that in the vast majority of cases, parents are the best therapists for children. So I'm so thrilled to be chatting with Claire today. Without any further delay, I'd love to welcome Claire Rowe to the Secrets of Confident Women podcast. Hi, Claire. Hi, Anastasia. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. I'm super excited. My my coffee is poured and yeah, very excited to be on and have a chat. Excellent. I'm so glad. Honestly, I've had you on my mind for this podcast for a very long time. We've been doing this for about three years now. And I've always known that this is an issue that a lot of women deal with because as you know, you know, there are so many separated families and so many blended families. And this is one of the things that will often have an impact on us. You know, am I doing right by my children? We lose a bit of that confidence when there's so much emotion going on for us with a family unit breaking down. It's just so hard to keep your mind in the game and know that you're doing right by your kids. So I've always known that this is a conversation that had to happen and I'm so excited that it's happening today. So to get us started, tell us a bit about yourself and what you do. Well, currently, as you said, I'm a psychologist. I'm a 38-year-old woman with two kids. I'm a psychologist running my own business. I suppose a bit of a background, I was originally born in the UK. Uh, My mum's English, and so half of my family is from there. But my parents came to Australia when I was very little, 18 months old. So I've grown up in Sydney. I've only ever lived in Sydney. Right. I've travelled, but I've never lived anywhere else. And I'm now raising my kids in Sydney. So I'm very much kind of planted here. 
growing up, I suppose, yeah, two working parents, hardworking, and I learnt very much through watching and observing them. And I think, and we'll probably get into it, but I think in generational kind of change, there wasn't there wasn't probably a lot of thought back then into raising resilient and confident children. I mean, my parents would say they didn't have time for that. So yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely, mine too. Yeah. My parents were migrants. It was the same thing. It's like, we just need to pay the bills. We need to pay off the house. Absolutely. We need to put food on the table. I don't think it's that they didn't want to pay attention to it. I just think it wasn't on their radar the way it is for us today. We're so much more aware about Mm. building this resilience and this confidence for our kids. Yeah, but despite that, Anastasia, I knew I was loved. Like, yes. I, I never doubted it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that. I didn't need them to kind of say it all the time. I knew I was loved and they were both working hard. And something you may not know about me, actually, I had another career yeah. almost before psychology. I did not know and, this. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually an ex-professional ballroom dancer. <gasps> so no random. <laughs> so random. I know people people discover photos and they go, is that, is that my psychologist? So, yeah, I, I actually took a year off after school and I ended up going to university just because, look, my parents are both, you know, this is what you do in our family yeah. and, and yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know anyone in my family who has not been to university. And so on the flip side, it's, it's like, well, that's what you do. So I, I went and picked a Bachelor of Arts because I was creative unlike my parents and they were more science-minded and, and I started picking things and fell into psychology. But but through that time, I actually owned my own dance studio. I was dancing seven days a week. I have um, no idea. Yeah. Oh, my God. My <laughs> and, daughter um, would be so thrilled because she's a dancer. <laughs> and she actually yeah. did ballroom dancing in year five. I think they won the, like the state championships through their school. In the dance spot. Yes. The dance spot school program, which is a great program. I'm yes. Oh, my God. She's <laughs> yeah. going to be thrilled because I did tell my kids, I'm speaking with you today, and they're like, ask her if she remembers us. Oh, it's been a while, hasn't it? So yeah, long, it but um, I, yeah, I do, I do. I remember all my kids, I see. Oh, wow. That is incredible. <laughs> I had no idea. And that's such a huge transition from a creative-based mm. career to a science-based career. Look, it is science-based. I think at that point, yeah, I'd owned the studio. I was traveling internationally, competing professionally. And at that point, I was still studying and picked psychology for an interest and thought, well, you know, I need a backup and, you know... I'll admit, I think there was a lot of parent-pleasing in that sense yeah. in my early 20s. Well, you can't just be a dancer, Claire, and run a dance studio. I mean, now if my my kid wanted to do something like that, I'd say absolutely you can. But I understand where they were coming from and my father particularly kind of saw dancing as more of a hobby, not not yeah. a career. And yeah. it was maybe appeasing them that I got a degree and, and majored in psychology and, you know, pursued that in the end and various reasons about why, you know, I kind of left dancing. But the other interesting thing is I, I tell people I, I never wanted to work with children when I was studying psychology. <laughs> That's not concerning I, um, at all, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was not that I didn't want to. It just was not – I never thought about it. I never yeah. – you know, a lot of psychologists who do what I do went into it going, I always wanted to work with kids. And that, yeah. that wasn't me. I was going to work clinically with adults. And again, I fell into different courses and different things and picked up some work working with kids. And I've never looked back and in fact, never done kind of adult individual therapy now. So oh, wow. <laughs> so you, you definitely found your niche. It was like a, a roundabout way of getting there, but you got there. Yeah. 
things happen in life and I think things unfold and I try and tell the high school kids and the year 12s I see now, like when there's that classic kind of pressure to go, well, what am I going to be and what's my career going to be? It's yeah. like, oh, goodness, like I'm still, you know, I don't know what's the next 10 years going to look like. I don't know. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's different now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be adaptable because I think maybe our parents' mentality was very much a you find a good job or a good career and you stick with it for as long as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't even change jobs back then. You just picked Mm. a job that was safe and secure and you stuck with it. Whereas these days, people not only change jobs, they'll have two or three different careers in their life, like complete changes. I was in the legal industry. Now I'm not doing that at all. Mm, Absolutely. And isn't that great that we can do that? Yeah, Yeah, it's great. fantastic. And I think it takes a lot of pressure off. Who knows at 20 who they are and Absolutely, yeah. What they want to be doing at 40 or 50. So so anyway, me now, yeah, we've got a private practice in Sydney. There's a team all up with admin of eight of us at the moment. I run that team and supervise other psychologists. I still do have a a smaller caseload myself. And then in the last few years, I've really gotten into public speaking, media work, writing. I write regularly for some online publications and and national papers and loving that, loving that variation of work in that way. Awesome. It's a different way to get your message out and to do your work. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And then I've got a a four and five-year-old now myself, which I wouldn't have had when I last saw you. No, you did not. (laughs) So a four and five-year-old and I'm a co-parent and and Good I like times. using that word co-parent yes. because I think there's a bit of a, you know, if I say I'm a single parent, I'm single romantically, but I'm not yeah. a single parent. I'm a co-parent with someone who, who co-parents 50% with me and yeah. I've also been separated now for 12 months. Yeah. So doing that, doing work and and trying to work out what's what else next. I want and who I am and what's next in the meantime. Yes, good times, like most of us, yeah, because there's always yeah. something going on. Life's never just cruisy. I love that you referred to co-parenting because I had this exact same discussion with my kids yesterday because I've been co-parenting now for over nine years. And I said, for me, that that wording indicates that it's a joint effort. We're not two single parents. We're not, you know, I'm your parent when you're with me and then he's your parent when you're with your dad. Everything we do is a joint decision. Mm. We consult on everything and our primary focus is always our kids. So regardless of what goes on between the two of us, there is always a common goal and that is to make Mm. sure that our kids are okay. And it is co-parenting because I I am single and I'm a parent, but I'm not a single parent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if I described myself as a single parent, I think that's, or or vice versa, you know, that, it's quite dismissive of his role and the fact that I'm, I am not doing this solo. Yeah. I'm not doing it solo. I'm not a single parent. And it's, you know, disrespectful and dismissive yeah. of the huge 50% role that he plays, you know. That's right. And, and also I think it changes the understanding of what a true single parent is in terms of one parent raising children. That's yes. a different ball game altogether. That is a different ball game, and that's also yeah why I don't yeah. like describing myself as that because I'm not. They have a father who's very present, and my goodness, being a single parent if you are one is a whole different ball game. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, cool. Well, I got a question for you. Seeing as this is the Secrets of Confident Women podcast, what does confidence or being a confident woman mean to you? Hmm. Okay, I think it's someone who you know, it sounds a bit cliched, but knows themselves and makes decisions in their life and takes action. I suppose it has some power and agency over the direction of their life. Right. You know, in terms of trying to make things happen rather than 
kind of being swept along and having that confidence. Yes. Yes, intentional and having that confidence to be able to say, this is not what I want for my life right now. It might be okay for other people or it might be what society expects, but actually it's not what I want and I'm going to change things and have the confidence to do that and, and create create the life that I want. Yeah, takes courage, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the other half of it, and this is, I mean, a lot of these lessons of was thinking about this this morning are just, you know, they're ongoing lessons and things that come with age and experience and wisdom, all those yeah. things. But I think someone confident to me is someone who doesn't rely on others to either make them happy yeah. or doesn't need to prove themselves to others. When I think about myself personally, I think my narrative and everyone's got their own narrative that comes from probably early, early childhood. And mine has been, and it's taken me nearly 40 years to uncover this, that, you know, <laughs> that I don't think I'm good enough a lot of the time, you know, that I'm not enough, that I'm not good enough, you know, I have yeah. to be doing more, I have to, the business has to be better, I have to be better at, you know, I have to be kind of kicking goals all over the place. And My goodness, there are so many of us struggling with that, isn't there, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's insane. So I think, yeah, I think confidence comes from knowing that that you are enough. It yeah. is good enough. You are enough. You don't need to. If you're going to do all those things, you do it because it brings you happiness. But a confident woman doesn't need to do those things to prove anything to the world. Right. I love that. Yeah, that's mm. so true because we do so much, especially as mums, for other people. And you're right. We do feel like we constantly need to be kicking goals because unless you're achieving and your achievement is visible – then you're not winning at life. So there must be something wrong. And it is this kind of perspective that's pushed on us all the time. And it, it is hard to break away from that. It does take courage to go, I'm a confident woman and I don't need to prove it to you. My first thought bubble in my mind is that I'm not good enough but the difference is I can recognise it. And I think, you know, when I work with people, I, I think we can't control what pops into our head. I mean, the idea of controlling our thoughts, that, that's nonsense. I mean, if thoughts pop in, they pop in. Yeah, but we can manage the impact they have, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the thought still pops in there. Yeah. But then I can say, no, wait, and, and recognise that and stop it in its tracks and say, no, that's not right. I am enough and I am good enough. And so that's the difference. It, yeah. it doesn't sit there as this kind of deep belief. It's this passing thought sometimes. Yeah. We talk about that all the time in Rise Women even when it comes to things like fear and self-doubt and negative thinking and limiting beliefs, all of these things are just thoughts that pop into your mind and you're no different from anyone else if you have these thoughts. We all have them. Mm. The people who do well and who end up being happy and satisfied and self-expressed are the ones who, like you said, recognise them, acknowledge that they're there and then move past them, find a way to manage them, navigate Mm. around them and not let them stop them from doing what they want. Because if everyone's having these thoughts and people are still out there achieving and being happy, then clearly the thoughts aren't the issue, right? It's how they're responding to them and how much they take them on as truth. Oh, absolutely. And that's the difference is, yeah. is whether you take them on as truth. It's a, a thought is a thought. I could think anything. Yeah. And I love working with kids when I tell them, you know, don't think about a pink elephant. <laughs> <laughs> and they start laughing and I go, what are you thinking about? I told you not to. You can't control. <laughs> I can put anything in your brain right now in a second. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what do you do with that? Yeah, it doesn't make it reality. And so, yeah, the difference is how much you believe that thought and how much then it actually impacts your next action and your next behaviour. Yes, and how much you let it become a habit Mm. in your life to believe these Mm. thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. So when are you the most confident version of yourself? 
Look, I think there's a couple of a couple of times if I can if I can have a couple of times. Yeah, um, absolutely, you're allowed. I think, <laughs> <laughs> look, at work I am. When I am, unlike I think maybe some people, when I am talking to a group of people, like I'm doing public speaking and I am talking about something that one, I feel that is my area of expertise and I can speak confidently that I know the topic and I have strong opinions on it and I get good feedback from a room of people. I'm in my element. I love public speaking and I feel very confident doing it. I mean, when I start kind of in the zone and I, I love it and I love... I love doing that and I love reaching kind of groups of people and I know it terrifies other people doing something like that. But for me, it actually feeds my confidence. That's incredible because it does terrify a lot of people. I know Jodie loves it. She loves having a microphone in her hand. I I have little meltdowns. I'll I'll do it, but it Mm. does freak me out. But some people just thrive on it. They love that energy Mm. and that vibe and that interaction with an audience. Yeah, I still get, I mean, a little bit of the nerves right before, but it's more kind of an adrenaline rush and then I feed off that and I love that adrenaline rush of it. And and the bigger the crowd, the better. I love it. I think as women, look, we can't go past the fact that there are different areas of confidence and one area is physical confidence with our bodies. I mean, it's just we can't deny or pretend that doesn't exist. And I felt the most confident physically during my pregnancies. Oh, Wow. I know that's very different for other people and I was very, very fortunate that I had two just beautiful pregnancies where I just, I didn't even feel sick one day and I won't harp on about that because I know a lot of women struggle. (laughs) They're cursing you right (laughs) now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, when I was heavily pregnant, summer, string bikini, never felt that confident to ever rock a string bikini before or since. (laughs) And I loved that feeling. Yeah, I loved it. Because it's not about how you looked, that's why. It's about what you were doing and how you felt. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, Yeah. It's funny you should say that. I I had really cruisy pregnancies and I loved them. But I think one of the most empowered times I ever felt with my body was during labour. Not even okay. pregnancy, but just giving birth. I'm like, this body is incredible. I don't care how it looks right now. What it is actually doing, doing. is amazing. And I've never yeah. felt that empowered physically as I did wow. in that process. I think I could look back after labour and appreciate that. I don't think I could Not have in the moment. empowered during labour. No, 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 no. no. I was um, in the moment no. going, oh, my God, check me out. I rock. <laughs> um, yeah, afterwards I'm like, that was insane. But Yeah. It's something I'd like to feel again, not pregnancy necessarily, but feeling that confident in a, in a bikini. And yeah. It, yeah, maybe it was just that, look, at 35 weeks pregnant, people expect you to be big and my, my stomach had never been firmer and um, yeah, it just felt beautiful and it was great. I felt super body confident. Yeah. And, and then, you know, I think I feel confident when i am got girlfriends and we make an effort and we put heels on and we dress up and we go out for a cocktail. And yeah. I feel, again, it's just you need to figure out what makes you confident and that does it for me. I mean, if I'm, if I'm not having a confident day, I will specifically choose clothes, makeup, heels that I love dressing up and it, it, it does add to my confidence. But I feel super yeah. confident if I've put the effort in and we're out on the town and I'm with a girlfriend, yeah. Yeah, I totally understand that. There's something about surrounding yourself with the right people and making an effort and feeling somewhat different to your day-to-day, you know, kind of, I've woken up, I've got to do housework or whatever, but making that effort and looking in the mirror and going, okay, I'm Mm. ready to kind of get out there. Uh, Yeah, there is something about it. It gives you a little boost. 
Yeah, and I think everyone can achieve that. I think everyone, you know, think, oh, no, I, don't, I never look good when I – I think, you know, you can, you can. Yeah. And I, I think it makes a big difference to you. It's, it's a form of self-care. As you said, I think the difference is it's you look different to how you do day to day. You look in the mirror and you think, oh, you know, yeah. wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love my heels and for me that makes a difference and I, I like to put some makeup on. And But it can't. it might not be that for everyone. It might just be mm. doing something different and, and giving yourself that extra self-care to face yep. the day with a different mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So a lot of what you do as a family psychologist involves helping families who have experienced a recent transformation, right? Like a, when parents separate. And I recall coming to you straight after my own separation when my children were really young because I wanted help to transition them to what was going to be our new normal. And I found that whilst I was busy rebuilding and, and healing myself, I was also really petrified about how I was going to help my children moving forward because parenting is hard enough on a good day, right? We all know this. But parenting with a whole new set of rules was for me just downright terrifying because I just had this constant thought that I'm going to mess this up. And in the process, I'm going to mess up these kids. And I just felt like I had no idea what I was doing under the new circumstances. I felt like I'd lost all my confidence when it came to being a good mum. And I'm sure you've come across this, you know, hundreds of times. So based on your experience, what's one of the biggest issues that you believe parents face when it comes to their confidence, especially when their family model changes really drastically? Like what scares them the most? Mm, When we're talking about that family model changing, nothing can quite meet up to a breakdown of a marriage or or a relationship separation. I mean, that's, you know, as I said, I'm 12 months out from that now. So it's a different perspective because I've always worked in this space professionally. And so I've now gone through it personally. Yeah. 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 So a whole new outlook, really. I mean, in in some ways, my clients will probably benefit. (laughs) It's, uh, it, it is life shattering upside down back to front change. I mean, it's regardless of whether you chose that marital separation or not, it's, you know, my experience was quite a sudden one and it was, you know, a rug being pulled out and then here's a new life. Here you go. Here's a new life. Do with it what you will. like, Mm. what? I, I don't know that life. I don't, you know. And I've always said, I mean, prior to this, I've always said that one of the hardest aspects I found becoming a parent was that, you don't ever get, I mean, it sounds obvious, but you don't ever get a chance to stop. And you don't, yes. you know, in a previous life, pre-kids, if you're sick, we take a day off and you stay in bed, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? You go, oh, I'm checking out a life for a minute and I just need this 24 hours to, um, you know, get myself a bit better and then I'll be back. Yeah. We don't get to do that. And so in a similar way, I think one of the hardest things about separation and divorce is you are the most emotionally vulnerable and needy and fragile and yet you have to get out of bed because someone is calling you for their, you know, Cocoa Pops at 6am still. You know, depending on what age. Yeah. Yeah. And depending on what age the children are, and you know, you had young kids at separation, and so did I. And yeah. they're not sitting there thinking, "Well, I better leave mum alone for a bit," because you know. And so that is one of the hardest things: is that the relentlessness of, you know, no one gives you that breathing space to stop, and, and you, just know, you just need to keep going. Yeah. And at the same time, that's really good in the early days because I had to get out of bed and I had to keep going and I had to, you know, fix the breakfast and drive them to school because, you know, in, in some ways it's this double-edged sword, and I kind of appreciated that. Well, if it wasn't. Well, would I? You would have stayed in bed. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is a a welcome distraction and at the time it's exhausting. Mm. But I wonder, yeah, if I didn't have that, 
to keep me busy and occupied. And, and it does take your thoughts away from it occasionally. You're like, right, now I need, mm. I've need. i got a little person who needs a nappy changed or they need to yep. be fed or they need to be driven somewhere. So I'm just going to put all the you craziness in my life aside for a second and just do what I have to do. Just do it. And you yeah. go into action mode and that's not a bad thing. And we know that from other areas of grief, right, when someone dies or people have this weird sense of just going into kind of action mode and not processing things initially. And then, you know, it takes time and you come back to it. I think, yeah. I think in answer to your question, you know, one of the scariest things I hear and then I experienced was even though there's such an emphasis on co-parenting and there is, the decisions that we make as parents together, you know, what I call the bigger decisions in, in, you know, what activities they should do and their their daily and weekly routines in that sense and schools and medical decisions and and all that stuff. There's a whole heap of daily decisions that kind of go, oh, I'm just kind of making all this now by myself. There's such security and stability and comfort still in a traditional mum, dad, kids family at home that you always just have that other person. And so particularly when you've got little kids, you know, do you reckon we should, you know, what time do you reckon we should feed them? Or do you reckon we should put them to bed yet? Or do you reckon? There's someone someone to bounce bounce ideas off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think one of the scariest things is, Okay, you're going to co-parent on those big decisions, and you should involve your your ex partner in those big, bigger decisions. But no, when you've got the kids in your weekend, you can kind of parent how you want, yes. and that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the same parent as their other parent. And in fact, most couples that come to me, I can see it pretty clearly. Different parents. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. they're different, and that contributed to the end of their relationship. They were all great until they had kids, and then they looked at each other and went, "Oh, you're going to parent like that." Like, <laughs> yeah, that's not my that's plan. Not about. And so they're very different. And so yeah. I think it's slightly scary that freedom or that space to be able to say, "Oh, I can be the whatever parent I want to be right now," and I, I can. You know, when the kids are with you in your time, you can feed them what you want. You can do what you want with them. They're, they're yeah. your kids. But suddenly that scary freedom of solo parenting and decision-making on the tiny decisions I found unexpectedly scary. Yeah. It's almost like the boundaries that we had in place before of having someone to bounce off, they're gone. And, yeah. and you know, when you give, it's like going to a restaurant with too many options on the menu. You're like, I, I wish they'd just go to me. Here's your chicken. Here's your beef. Here's your fish option. Yeah. Pick one. But when they give you like 30 different, you're like, I don't even know where to start. And I felt I had those same fears mm. and also that opposite fear of, oh my God, now all the little day-to-day decisions are mine when they're with me. But then mm. you have that fear of when they're with the other parent, I've lost control of all of those decisions. And that scared me too, that I don't know what he's feeding them. I don't know where he's taking them. I don't know what he's saying to them. I'm fortunate that, you know, I trust their dad in that respect and and I know he'll do right by them. Mm. Unfortunately, there are some co-parents who don't have that same sort of trust in each other and they don't know. They feel like I've got complete control now when they're with me and that's fantastic. But when they're not with me, Mm. you know, there's nothing I can do. And then they come back to me with my ex-partner's ideas in their head and how Mm. do I work with that? Yeah, I think part of the – there's so many layers of grief to work through at the end of a marriage, obviously, yeah. being the marriage itself. And when we get around to it on a parenting perspective, which is where I come in with clients, there is an element of grief 
that they need to work through of letting go of having that say and control yes. 50% of the time of their child's lives or, or whatever percentage that it's they're not so with hard. them. Yeah. It is hard. And when you give birth to a baby, you're holding that baby and that newborn with your partner and you're holding it going, you know, I will never feed you McDonald's. Yeah, right. But <laughs> you, 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 I will never sit you in front of a TV <laughs> or give you an iPad. <laughs> But you do have ideas of what you're going to do and how you're going to do things and you've thought about that through the pregnancy. And then when you separate, you do need to get to a point of letting go and I talk to particularly mothers about that, about saying, you know, within reason, when they're on his weekend or his week, he can feed them what he wants and he can put them to bed when he wants and he can – and we're going to need to let that go. And I said, you know, within reason and that's why it is so important to have a good amicable communication relationship when you can so that you can sit down and say, well, you know, can we keep the bedtime similar and this is what I'm doing and that's great. But there are limits to that. And, you know, at the end of the day, when they're with their other parents, they're going to parent in their fashion and that's different from you and that's how it's going to be and that's okay. And the kids will be okay. That's the thing. The kids will be okay because I used to think, because my kids were Mm. so little, I'm like, well, I know what I'm doing because I've figured out how I want to raise my children. And they come to you and you do things a little bit differently. Is that going to mess them up? Because people always go, you know, kids need structure and they need repetition and Mm. they need to stay within the boundaries of, yes, the right bedtimes and the same foods and and the same kind of Mm. communication. So if you're doing it one way and I'm doing it another way, is that messing with their head? And that scared me too, that they'd be so Mm. confused because they're getting two different parenting styles, but they're so adaptable. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't confuse or mess with their head at all. And and for the simple reason that you can see kids learn different expectations, rules uh, in different households and environments. And you can take that from kids who live with both parents. They're completely differently behaved at school and in the classroom to at home because there's different rules, expectations and, you know, consequences and so forth. And, you know, kids are, you know, they're perfect yeah. angels at school and then they... And they walk into their grandparents' house. There are already yes. multiple environments. I mean, I act differently to how I do at home to work. I'm not confused by that. It doesn't confuse yeah, me. So yeah. I think we need to get some perspective on that and go, no, 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 kids can learn. I can do that at dad's house. I can get away with that, but I can't get away with that. When I'm in trouble at dad's, I lose my iPad or go to my room and that's what happens at dad's house. And then I seamlessly, and I watch kids every day do it, step through the front door of the other parent's house and I know the rules are different. It doesn't confuse me. I just know these are the rules of dad's and these are the rules of mum's. You know, kids aren't silly. They already do that between grandparents, school, home, multiple places. It's fine. It's so reassuring to hear that. Mm. I found that that was one of my biggest fears. And I can see it now because my kids are teenagers and I can see that they did adapt and they do know what the rules are at dad's house, what the rules are at mum's house, at grandma's house, at the other grandma's house because two grandmas are also different. Because that's different. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, it rolls off the tongue with parents I work with of, you know, well, well, dad's house, dad's rules, you know, mum's house, mum's rules. You know, suck it up, that's it. Don't come to me and say, oh, I can do this at dad's house. Oh, well, good luck to that. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, don't feed into that. You know, I love that. I think that changes everything because when you have that, when you finally have acceptance of that, it Mm. takes off so much pressure. Like you Mm. said, when you can let that go, it changes everything. And actually one of the things I love the most about your approach was that you believe that therapy or treatment doesn't have to be ongoing for years and years. And I love the fact that you told me, I remember the first time I came to you, you said to me that your goal was to equip me and their dad with the tools that we need to be able to help 
you know, the kids. It wasn't about the parents have broken up, now these kids are going to need to be in treatment for 20 years. And that was one of my biggest fears as well. I don't want them having a relationship falling apart when they're 40 and going, well, this is because my parents broke up when I was five. I wanted to make sure that, you know, they were kind of grounded Mm. and they understood and we spoke to them in an age-appropriate way because they were young. So Mm. it's about knowing how much information do we give them, what do they not need to know, what can their brains not process at this young age. So what's your tip for parents who are in that situation and who are looking for ways to confidently continue parenting despite a change in circumstances? Mm. There was a lot of good things there. I'll, I'll take note of some of those things. Oh, thanks. I'm, glad I could. <laughs> I'm glad I said that. So. Yeah. Yeah, look, you need to shake off guilt. And this is a separated tip and a non-separated tip, actually. This is a parenting tip. You know, I get multiple people like you did come to me and say, oh, my goodness, I feel I feel so guilty that my, yes. my child may not have good relationships because their parents have split up. You know, I understand it, but it, it still astounds me that people put that much pressure on themselves to think, well, there's not other influences in your child's life or their, <laughs> you know, success of future relationships than your marriage and, and what would be the effect if you had have stayed together and they'd watched a dysfunctional marriage. That's and, exactly you know, right. All that stuff. Yeah. 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 So shaking off guilt, it paralyzes you, it's a trap. I think everyone searches and craves balance in parenting and life and that's the utopia. We're all after that balance and, and work-life yeah. balance and and sometimes that's achievable and sometimes it's not. But the perfect mother doesn't exist and it's about not letting one part of your life, you know, including parenting, overwhelm the rest of your life yeah. um, and become so focused on that. Someone said to me years ago, and I I passed this on as, you know, the analogy that we're all juggling the balls, right? And we've got, you know, our balls are kind of work and kids and our home domestic situation and our personal self-care and and our nutrition and our exercise. So so many many balls. balls. Yeah, yeah, so many balls (laughs) in the air. You try and keep them all up and sometimes you do and that's the times you feel confident, I suppose. But there's other times that you're going to choose to drop a ball, but you're going to choose which one. You're going to actually actively choose which one to drop. It's a good tip generally, but but particularly in the early age the stages of separation, yeah. meaning, you know, this week I work commitments for me and things I need to get done are really important to me and they mean a lot to my career and that is my priority. So I am going to actively choose to drop the parenting ball this week and you know what, we're having sushi tonight and then we're having some microwave dinners and I'm not actually doing the reader every night this week. But yeah. I've actively chosen to, maybe not drop it, but put that ball down and that's then you don't okay. feel like life's happening to you, right? Then you feel no. like it's a, there's an element of control. I have chosen this course yes. for my own sanity or whatever it is this week because this is the way I'm going to get through it. And when you put that element of choice in, it shifts everything. Yeah, yeah. And then other weeks, you know, it might be the opposite. I might say, you know, I just can't, um, I'm going to put the work ball down, you know, this week or month even and say, I just can't take that on. And I, I need to let people know that I just won't be available to them because I do want to be at the Easter hat parade and the school pickup. And I do want to be actually making sure my kids are okay this month or this week or this day. Yeah. And so you don't have to keep all the balls up in the air. You can choose to let one go, even if it's your own exercise, nutrition, or wh- whatever you think that needs to be put down that week, just put it down. As I said, I think that comes down to control because when you are trying to then keep them all up and one of them drops and smashes, then you feel like a failure yeah. and then you don't feel confident. Exactly. And we do need to give ourselves permission to do that, don't we? Yeah. And then that's when the expression comes, you know, I've dropped the ball and I've, I've really let people down now without, 
yeah, that control and choice that you can put a ball down. So, so I think yeah. that gives you confidence. And I think I do love that analogy. Yeah, I think for parents going through separation, it really is transformational. I mean, in the true sense of you know, it transforms everything. It transforms you as a person, your family, your kids' lives. Yeah. You go in at one end and you come out at something else. And for everything to be transformed, you know, everything needs to be smashed to pieces type of thing. It's like when you clean your house and it needs to get messier before it gets cleaner. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that's okay. That's okay, And that's okay. That's okay. You know, and I I feel like I've been through kind of, you know, confidence kind of smashed to pieces on the ground and then you start putting it together and it looks different. You put it together in a different way than what it was. Yeah, absolutely, because you're putting it together for a different reason, right? Like your your circumstances, your environment's changed and you need to find something else. You need to find Mm. something else to get you through whatever experience you're going through because you never come back the same way and you never come back in the same place. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But what do you do through those weeks and months of being smashed on the floor? Um, In terms of, you know, your question about how to keep confidently parenting, it sounds cliched, but you just kindness to yourself, kindness to yourself that you're putting down a few balls this, at this point in your life. <laughs> like yeah. The house is a mess and you're not exercising and you're not, but, you know, kindness to oneself. And I think a lot of people are well-intentioned around that period of their friends' lives, but sometimes people can rush in too early with the Oh, you'll be better and stronger and you'll, you know, you'll see that this is the best thing for you. And when you're in that moment, you can't see that. You are in pieces. It's not until you start putting yourself together that you can conceptualize that maybe this is going to be a good thing. Yeah. I heard that somewhere recently. I've, I've spoken to a few people and they've said a similar thing. Like if you look at the top of the mountain and where you want to be, it's just too far. You can't envision yourself getting there. You just look down at your feet. Can you see the first step? Take that first step. Yeah. And then take the next step and take, because if you look at overall where you want to be, you know, I want to be better and I want to get past this and I want everything to be perfect again. It's just too overwhelming. It's just one step at a time. Do what you can. Take care of yourself. Forgive yourself. Yes. Forgive yourself. Like, forgive yourself for the microwave dinner for the kids or the, the Happy Meal or the, just don't beat yourself up over that because there was a video I watched once on, on, social media and I never found it again and I wish I'd saved it. But I'd watched it once and it stuck with me and it's mother's memory of the day as she goes to bed and, and she's remembering the day and yeah. and all she remembers is yelling at the four-year-old to get in the car and they're tantruming and yelling them at to do this and mopping stuff off of the ground and losing it at them and, you know, yeah. you know this irritability and short fuse at these kids. And, and she lies in bed kind of in tears thinking, oh, gosh, that was the whole day for my kids, you know. Oh God, and then it kind of – you value yeah, going to do it differently. There. You always yeah. say tomorrow will be different. Yeah, but then yeah. it goes to the kid, right, in this video, and it goes to the kid and the kid's falling asleep and she's remembering the day. Yeah. And she doesn't remember any of that. Her. And it still chokes me up thinking about that. And, and she remembers mum laughing at her as she's picking her up and swinging her around and she remembers mum cooking her breakfast and she remembers mum and that's what she remembers. Yeah. Yeah, so just kindness and forgiveness of those moments. Oh, my God, that's tricking me up. That's, <laughs> that, yeah, I need to never watch that video because I'd be a mess. Because it's true, we do. We go to bed every night and we berate ourselves for everything we did wrong for the day, not just with parenting, with everything. You know, you'll do a thousand mm. things right for work or with family or with friends and what sticks with you is the one thing one where thing. you did drop the ball. Put the ball down. Yeah, just put the ball yeah, down. put the ball down. Gently. I like this. This is going to be my new motto. Just put the ball down, Anastasia. 
So tell me, in your experience, what do you believe has the biggest impact on a person's ability to confidently parent, especially in today's world where, you know, we're bombarded with these incredible amounts of social pressures and there's always external influences. People always have opinions. Social media is a beast unto itself. It just dictates so much of what we should be doing. Is there a recurring theme that you see coming up over and over again with your clients? Most definitely, most definitely, regardless of life change or not. One of the major areas I talk a lot about and write about a lot is the change in parenting of, I suppose, our generation of of parents in the last 10 to 15 years. And that's through a number of factors, multi-layered. I mean, it's women in the last century, career successful driven women entering the workforce and then having children. It's it's the invention of the internet. It's the invention of the parenting expert, which, you know, I am part of that industry, but it's a terrible industry, I think. And one of the major things I talk about is that I feel that we've lost our, we haven't lost, but we're not in tune with our instinctual, natural drive and decision-making as parents to intuitively parent. And what we do instead is we turn to Google and we turn to friends and we turn to our mum's group and we turn to Facebook and we turn to to ask every single little question. And so the paralysis by analysis in parenting, parenting has become an industry. It was never an industry. And most clients who come to me are part of, oh, yeah, I'm part of this Facebook group and this Facebook group. And I've read 10 parenting books and I've, like, they're very skilled up. Like, we are the most skilled up and educated than ever before about parenting child behavior. Too much information? It's too, it's way too much information, way too much. So, how do we Um, counteract that? Because it's really hard to switch it off. It's everywhere. It comes at us from every angle. You have to be active and do it. Yeah. So, you know, I give talks to women who are pregnant at that stage. I mean, they're already anxious. They're already treating this like a research project and have decked out their houses to be every single device that they supposedly have to have for a newborn. But our parents raised us without any of that. I mean, my mum. Countless of generations. Thousands, thousands of years, thousands of years where women have just been having babies and raising humans and we would have died out as a race if they weren't doing a good job. But now we can't do it. We can't do it without Google. We can't do it without, you know, Mm. our devices to make sure our kids are breathing, that their bed Mm. is warm enough, that there's just so much Mm. pressure that we put on to Mm. get it right. And I wonder how they got it right all those years ago. Well, that's right. And that's what I say, you know, we've been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. Mm. If you know, you were just handed a newborn child with no other information other than to keep it alive, you would. You'd do it. You'd work it out. You may not feed them exactly the right thing, but who cares? I mean, kids grow up in all different parts of the world initially eating different things. It doesn't have to be the rice cereal that Western culture dictates. It doesn't have to be, you know, like all these rules. They've only very recently, the last 20, 30 years, rules have come in place. My mother stuck her hand in the bathtub to make sure the water was okay. She didn't use a thermometer. Yes. And so... We've got really intelligent, highly intelligent women becoming parents and losing their confidence because of all this information. And I kind of grab them and I'm like, hang on, you can do this. This is not, you know, you probably need a car seat. Actually, you definitely need a car seat. (laughs) And you need somewhere for the baby to sleep a cot. Really, everything else is kind of add-ons. Like, it it really is. And they're shocked to hear that. That, I just say that because that's how it starts and then it continues for the next 18 years. So... Yes. (laughs) It doesn't stop. Yeah, yeah. And these days it goes even longer 
than 18 years. Yeah, yeah. It is a lifelong. I talk to my mum and she's like, it is a lifelong thing. And it's true. I'm 45 years old and I still depend on my mum. I need her advice. Uh-huh. I need her support. I need her guidance. I need her affection. It doesn't change because I'm an adult and I'm parenting my own kids. I still mm. need that. And she's never parented a 45-year-old either. So even at her age with a child my age, it's still a learning curve. I think that's the absolute natural source of all those things you were talking about, affection and knowledge and guidance, yeah. is your parent. Yes. Because in previous generations, I think how did my mum know how to parent? Well, she did what her mum did and she did what her mum did. Yes. And we did turn to our mothers or close people around us, very close friends or close family members. The difference was they didn't turn to social media and the internet and, and parenting books. I mean, they didn't read parenting books. So it has to be an active choice to not engage when you're feeling overwhelmed with all that information to rest assured if you know if you need to come to someone like me to hear it from a professional that good enough parenting is good enough yes it actually takes a lot to stuff up a child. <laughs> like, <laughs> Thank you for that. People, That's so good. Because <laughs> like, I feel like I'm doing that, it every day. I make a we wrong need choice. That perspective. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to, like you said, though, when you're in the moment and you're doing, because we never stop doing, right? Mm. I can't just go, I'm taking a week off from being a parent. Because even if I decide to go on holidays by myself without my children, I'm still a parent. Mm. I'm still thinking about them all the time. I'm still checking in with their dad all the time. Have they eaten? Did they go to bed? Did they do their homework? There's always stuff going on. Mm. It's really hard to let that go. Yeah, it is. It is. But I think sometimes when I give people those kind of home truths, they Mm. really know it deep down. And I think that that's what I'm talking about when we need to reconnect with the intuitive part of, hang on a second, people have been doing this for thousands of years. This is what humans and animals do. We breed and we raise people. We don't need to overanalyze it this much. Yeah. You know, people have come to me, they're worried about their child's resiliency and self-esteem, you know, every day. This is the concern right now. It actually just takes a lot of years of really, I'm talking severe abuse to get, like, you're fine. They're fine. They know they're loved. I knew I was loved as a kid. They're, you know, I mean, they might tell you, I don't think I'm loved and storm off and, you know, say they want to I hate you. I want a new mum. It's like, okay, go find one. All right. Mm. And I think, you know, parents are scared these days in terms of confidence. Parents are scared by the media's presence about youth mental health, about youth self-harm, youth suicide rates. And it scares parents and it it robs them of this confidence to think, oh, well, I can't do that. I can't send them to their room or I can't say no to them because they might have abandonment issues and they might, you know, I've read the stats, Claire, on on self-harming and and actually you're not doing that kid any service or assistance by kind of walking walking on eggshells and I work with parents to switch off all of that extra information and really try and sit in the moment with intuitively what do you think you should do right now and you know it's nearly 100% of the time it's correct you know. Um, they know what they're doing it's just yeah. all these it's funny you should say that because this actually was my next question which was about self-doubt and how debilitating it can be as a parent because we are always second guessing ourselves and I think you're right it is all this extra information that we have that we Mm. think we know what we're doing but then if you over research you go oh maybe I shouldn't have done it that way or maybe I should try a different approach and I love this idea of the best way to manage this self-doubt is to just follow your intuition you know what you're doing don't let all that that confidence that you have in knowing what to do as a parent be clouded by all this extra information that really isn't necessary. Mm. Yep, 100%. Yeah, I love that. 
So what's your top tip for parents who know that their children do struggle with confidence? So there are kids who, you know, I mean, we see it all the time. There are some kids that are extroverts, some that are introverts. There are some kids that are really out there and you go, oh my God, I wish I had that kid's confidence at 12. And then there are other kids that are quite, you know, they're, they're sort of inside themselves and they don't speak up a lot and they don't make a lot of eye contact and things like that. But sometimes parents just don't know how to help them. So is there a tip that you've got to kind of help your children discover their confidence? Yeah, and I think just recognising what you said, that that part of confidence is personality, right? There are just going to be some people that are more confident than others and that's okay. And you're not going to make your child into their sibling who's way, way confident and the other one's not and that's okay. We're not going to make them like that. Almost instilling a quiet confidence in them. They don't have to be Mm. loud and extroverted but you know how you said in the beginning that it's about knowing yourself and being comfortable with yourself. It's about Mm. how do you instill that in your child so that they don't have to be loud to be confident, but you do want them to kind of be sure of who they are and, you know, kind of feel secure in their own body. Yeah, yeah. And and we don't want to, you know, when when is a problem a problem? You know, it's a problem when it impairs what they would normally want to do. You know, they pull out of sports teams or they stop doing what's something that they would ordinarily like to do because of confidence. So, look, I think a couple of things quickly. I think confidence in most areas of teaching kids anything, the first step is to model it yourself. Yes. Being okay that you make mistakes, bouncing back from that and giving things another shot trying new things yourself. Hey, mum's going to go try a, you know, a different, I don't know, sport or dance class. Or she's, yeah, I'm going to try something different and I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to try this. I haven't tried this before and I might like it or not, but I'm going to do it. So much more than talking to kids about anything is showing them. So model it yourself. I think the second thing is give kids responsibility, let go a little bit of the umbilical cord and give them a go, let them have a go at things if that's ordering food at shops or, you know, a four-year-old, let them chop some veggies under supervision, but let them handle a knife, let them, like on them and let them fail, but let them see that they can do things. It is related to an inner sense of confidence, but their ability to perform tasks. Yeah, accomplishment, um, it's accomplishment, accomplishment, isn't it? Because you do, you see it, especially with little kids who are always, you know, often told no, can't do that, it's not safe, don't do that, it's dangerous, Mm -hmm. let me do it, I know how to do it better. And we do put a lot of these restrictions on them and then they do something and it could be the Mm -hmm. smallest thing and they're just so excited, that sense of accomplishment and achievement. And, And I can understand that a series of events like that would do a lot to boost a child's confidence. Definitely, definitely. And then, look, lastly, I just talked to to kids and parents about embracing strengths and as well as imperfections. So I get kids to kind of draw for me multiple rings and and we label inside those rings things that they're great at, super good at, find really easy, things that are kind of in the middle, yeah, they're okay. And then also I get them to put down the things that they're kind of terrible at. And we laugh at them. We go, yeah, I'm terrible at that. And I do it myself with them. And we embrace the fact that that's what makes us us, the things that we're great at, okay at, terrible. And everyone's got one, you know, everyone's got things in all of those boxes. Yeah, yeah. And not everyone is good at everything and not everyone is terrible at everything. And that's all right. And that's what makes us us. Absolutely. So is there anything that you've learned from all your years of helping families that has made you a more confident woman, like a tip that you've picked up or something that you wish you'd known 10 years ago that you've learned over the years that has changed the way you operate as a woman, as a mum, as a career woman? Mm, I think... It's always great to have mentors and there's always someone ahead of me in life that I'm modelling off and has set the path. And if you want to accomplish anything, 
emotionally or business or parenting, you find someone who's already done it, right? Because yes. that's easier. And so you, you more, you don't reinvent the wheel. Don't reinvent yeah, yeah, the yeah, wheel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Don't ever underestimate the number of people that you're a mentor for, no matter what stage in life you're at. There will always be someone, there are people looking at you, you know, who are thinking, God, I wish I could do what she's doing. Even no matter what age or stage you're at, you know, at 20 years old at uni, there would have been uni students, uh, school students thinking, oh, I really want to do what she's doing. There are always people there. And I think that surprised me when I finally kind of thought, oh, there are people who want to know how I got to doing this or, or, you know, are looking at me. There's something in being inspiring. Yeah. In being an inspiration to someone, it does do something for your confidence, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it does. And there are, there will be those people around. I'm not sure, you know, in terms of life lessons, I'm not sure if you go back 10 years and you want to tell the younger yourself something. Yeah that that lesson would be necessarily as worthwhile at that point. That's true. Maybe you didn't need it then. You needed I didn't need it, it now. Then. Yeah. 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 Very Lessons true. take time and they unfold and you learn them as you need to learn them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think back to who I was 10 years ago, worlds apart from who I am today. And a, 10 years before that again, it's like I don't even recognise her. Mm. different Mm. people all together. I can see my journey and I can see myself in who I was 20 years ago, but where I am today, yeah. Like if you'd met me today and you'd met me 20 years ago, different people all together. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think if you'd met that person 20 years ago and said, great, look, here's all the knowledge. So you can, you know, I'm not sure if they would know what to do with it or would it it be as helpful. Yeah, because mm. she hadn't lived my experiences and there have been a number of them. Mm. She hasn't lived them. So she'd be like, yeah, thanks for that information, but I'm, I'm just going to head off to that bar <laughs> and have a drink. I'm still going to go and fail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go do what I'm doing anyway, but thanks. Right, so we're up to our Rise Women final power questions. So these are a series of one, two, three, four, six quick, okay. short, sharp questions. Are you ready? It's like a little quiz. Yep. It's going to hit you the do question. It. Give me an answer. Question number one, what do you wish every woman knew? That we don't all have it worked out. Love it. We don't all have it together. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like we do, but we don't. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> what is your superpower? Oversharing. Because <laughs> I, I used to shy away from it and yeah. I used to be like, you shouldn't do that as a psychologist and not my whole office wants to know my whole life and my clients. <laughs> actually, now I'm embraced it and clients go, no, it actually makes you really raw and relatable. Yeah, absolutely relatable. Yep. I've embraced it. Cool. Heels or flats? Heels, heels, heels. Yay. I'm a heels girl I'm an ex-ballroom dancer. I was born in heels. Oh, I love that. I think I was too. I was too. And I just buy them and they make me happy even if I don't wear them. I just want them there. Um, Your favourite quote or rule that you live by? Yeah, it's not my quote. I stole it, but I love it. That's all right. Everything is figureoutable. Oh, that's, I know her. Marie. Marie Marie Folio, Folio. yes. I love it too. She's written a book with that title. I know. I I used that word with my kids the other day. They're like, that's not a word. I'm like, yeah, it is now. It is now. I like figureoutable, yeah. And and I think that comes back to confidence too because there's this confidence in knowing that no matter what you're faced with, you can figure it out. You have this self-belief that everything is figureoutable. It may take time. You may need to use other people to help. You may, you know, not figure it out for a while. But at the end of the day, I think that message, and that message resonates with a five year old and it resonates with an adult. And I sit there with people and I look at them and I say, listen to me, everything is figure outable. We can do this. We can figure it out. I don't have the answer right now, but we will figure this out. It is figure outable. Yeah. It lets you take the load off a little and go, right. 
I've got this. Mm. Yeah. So who inspires you and why? That's a tough one. And I think I think the answer is probably a couple of my closest girlfriends. And I think if they're listening, they probably know who they are. And I think they're just, you know, everyone's gone through their own stuff in life and everyone has their own, yeah, struggles. But yeah. my closest girlfriends I look at and I think they're pillars of strength for their family and they don't really realise it even. And they're, they're intelligent and they're opinionated and they're also vulnerable and fragile and loving and I've got a great team of females. Yeah, I don't have a lot of friends, but I have a couple of close ones and um, they inspire me. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. So important to have. Okay, Mm. finish this sentence. If I had even more confidence than I do now, I would? I think that's the toughest question. And I I think (laughs) if I had more confidence, I would talk to more strangers. Is that weird? (laughs) Interesting. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I Just random conversations with people. Yeah, I'm also the person who's super confident when I'm either working or I'm with people I know. But if I walk into a social event, yeah. I love those people that can just come up to a group and be like, you know, hey, I'm such and such and introduce themselves. Yeah. And I think, oh, thank goodness for those people because <laughs> like, otherwise I would have been here by myself. And I want to be that person. And I also think we have lost the art of saying hi to people, having a chat with the person making your coffee or sparking up conversations because we're all on our phones. Yes. And if people think you're weird, who cares? I just think we've lost that and you don't know what connections may be made and what doors open and what paths open. Or just what amazing conversation you might have for five minutes and then you never connect with this person again, but they just touched your life in a little way. That's your homework for today, Claire. Yeah, I think so. After this, you need to go and just strike up a conversation with one random stranger. I will. Look out. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Well, I think that is a wrap. It has been so fantastic talking with you today. I'm so happy that our listeners will get to hear this incredible conversation and all of your amazing advice. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on the Secrets of Confident Women podcast. No problem at all. I loved it. It was fantastic. Thank you. And a big thank you to all of our listeners who are helping Jodie and I get our message out to the world. We absolutely love what we do and we want everyone to know about it. So please keep liking, subscribing, sharing, listening, whatever you're doing with this podcast. And remember, as we always say, with confidence, anything is possible. Bye for now.